Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello and welcome and thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. And back to the table here with me is Tim Cockrell. Tim recently led our congregation in the study of God's word in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 through chapter 3, verse 5. So, Tim, thanks for uh, getting back here with us. A great job you're doing. I, I told you that someone dear to me said just yesterday, hey, really enjoying this uh, this good study out of Hosea. Kind of a unique study to enjoy, but we're I know she and uh, many are really enjoying it, being oh, stretched. Thanks so much for your encouragement. I've really enjoyed it. This is my first time really doing a full verse-by-verse exegesis of the book, and it's just so rich and powerful. It's just been a really sweet study. And, and that's a reminder. That no matter how long you've been in ministry, and you've been in uh, public ministry for about what twenty, almost twenty, almost years, twenty years, yep. And there's always something new, even if you've been through the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. There's something new that God can teach us, no matter what. No doubt. Well, before we get begin, I, I do want to issue a, a quick disclaimer that some of what we discuss in this episode may be unsuitable for the younger ears in your vicinity. So feel free to hit the pause button. Make sure you get back to us though when you're able to do so. So Tim, let's go right at it. God really put Jose on what I would call a roller coaster with this lived out prophecy. Last week, we heard God essentially threatening a full revealing and uncovering a, a, a stripping bear of, of Gomer and by extrapolation of Israel's vileness. Yet in this week's passage, he doesn't, seems to do anyway, an about face. He talks about how he's going to allure her He's going to woo her mm-hmm. in the language of our parents. And that's in verse 14 here of chapter two. So it's a pretty stark contrast, but I guess that at least partly is the point. It's true. It's a theme that we see throughout the book of Hosea here, where God brings some statements of stern judgment and marvelous mercy. And he puts those right side by side. We pointed out in this message in chapter two, verse 14. He begins with the word therefore in that particular verse. And he has just given these stern and stark declarations of judgment. And so you're expecting him to just say, I'm done. I'm walking away as any of us from a human perspective would. But he says, therefore, I will allure her. And that doesn't follow human logic, but it follows the logic of divine grace. And that is God's judgment is his impetus for his mercy. And that in the darkest moments of our guilt and what we deserve, God takes the initiative and intervenes to shelter us from his judgment by his mercy. And that's that's the wonder of the whole Bible, but it's particularly powerful in this story. Well, let's uh, let's go to this. We had one listener ask uh, here this past week a question about something you mentioned in last week's sermon that mm-hmm. would have been over a week ago, and that was pertaining to God's move to divorce Israel due to her unfaithfulness. And, and that's what we're really talking here, chapter, uh, the first part of chapter one. Uh, it's not mentioned as divorce, mm-hmm. but that's that seems to be the move. So it's a strong word, divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that God hates divorce. You know, what Jesus tells us there, and believe this is in Matthew, I believe. But uh, this member was curious as to whether this story should be used to develop our understanding of divorce, and especially when a Christian's involved. 
It's a great question, and I want to answer it carefully because I think there's two dangers that we need to avoid. Mm. The one is to take it too much of a paradigm-shaping story, and the other is to just chalk it up to essentially a parable. I think what we do see for certain is that these covenants, even a covenant with the Lord, is not necessarily that it can't be dissolved. That God clearly says, I divorced her. That when the terms of a covenant are broken, even if one member is unconditionally committed to it, it it still can be broken in a way that leads to separation. That being said, I think we would want to be careful that we don't make this kind of a chair passage, if you will, that we draw our teaching on divorce. My personal perspective, as I study the rest of scripture, is that although God's design for marriage is that it be a lifelong, intimate, united, sacred union, that there are certain limited circumstances in which if a a spouse is unfaithful sexually or abandons a a person because they're an unbelieving, the unbelieving spouse abandons, that those may be conditions in which a divorce can be biblical. And so we, we can acknowledge that in this case, Israel was spiritually unfaithful and God says, I'm divorcing you, which I believe is consistent within the teaching that Jesus has in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and elsewhere. So although Christians would disagree on that, I think we at minimum need to say that although God hates divorce, it still can fall within his moral will, given that it's regulated there in uh, Exodus 24, and that we need to just... Uh, tread carefully as we try to apply this principle from this passage. And it'd probably be a good idea to remember what Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and to read all scripture and figure it out that way. Absolutely. Good. Well, thanks. I appreciate that, uh, that question from our member. So Tim, you commented on Sunday about what I believe you referenced. I think I heard you say this, a new Exodus Mm -hmm. in the second half of chapter two. And that is that God will lead Israel this time out of a spiritual slavery similar to the way he led them out of a physical slavery out of Egypt in uh, Genesis, so or rather in Exodus. So it strikes me that there's a lot of good counseling in this particular passage and concept for anyone who has, like Israel, lost their way. Let's go back to the beginning. Absolutely. Well, you know, it starts in the wilderness. When Israel was enslaved in the wilderness, they were crying out, but not necessarily even crying out to the Lord. It wasn't like they were taking the initiative to say, God, we're ready to, to come back and be faithful to you. But the Lord took the initiative to rescue them and to draw them out. And he brought them into the wilderness, which was a place of testing, of trial, and that that revealed what they were really trusting and it refined then what they were trusting. And that that physical slavery was kind of a picture of the spiritual slavery that every one of us are in. And Israel's unfaithfulness in the wilderness is a picture of of every one of us. And that's where I think it's so interesting that Matthew takes this passage out of Hosea 11. We referenced it in a previous podcast where uh, Jesus is brought up out of Egypt and and they go to Nazareth. And he says, this is to fulfill the scripture that says, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, if you look at Hosea 11.1, 1, it says, out of Egypt, I call my son, but the more and more I call, the more and more he rebelled against me. But here, I think what we're seeing is that there's a contrast between what Israel did in the first Exodus and what Jesus would do. He is the, the true and new Israel who will fulfill what we ourselves could not. And I think that is, to get to your question, 
the key thing that as we are struggling, as we are failing, as we face trials and testings and it exposes our weakness and our sinfulness, that our hope is not that we're going to finally get our act together or that we're going to finally prove our worthiness to God. Our hope is that Jesus is the new and better Adam. He is the new and better Exodus. He is the new and better priest. He is the new and better king. And because of that, he has already fulfilled all of the obligations of the law. And it's just up to us to trust in him and to receive that gift that he's already secured through his death, burial, and resurrection. Made a friend here about a year and a half ago, and he's still a friend, I'm glad to say. But uh, he says regularly, preach the gospel to yourself. Mm-hmm. Keep preaching the gospel to yourself. And that really isn't that what you're saying, by the way, you're my friend. <laughs> but uh, isn't that basically what you mean, though? Just Absolutely. remember where you've come from? Yes, that we rehearse who God is, who we are our daily dependence on God's grace, that we don't just leave the gospel in the rearview mirror once we've put our faith in Christ, but that every single day we are just as dependent, not just on his redeeming grace, but also his restoring grace. And that's what I love about this passage that we looked at this past week is it puts those two side by side. Mm -hmm. He doesn't just rescue us from the pit, but he helps us to grow to be more and more like him. Very good. So, Tim, let, let's jump to something else. It's a little scattered today. I don't know where my mind has been, but uh, <laughs> something that came to me as, as you were preaching, and it just uh, thought, maybe this might be a good topic mm-hmm. to discuss. Uh, we've talked about different types of prophecy over the past couple of weeks, and, and this is in that vein. Can we talk about promises to Israel and prophecy that are specific to Israel and how the church today should interact with those promises? Is any of that to Israel, also to us, and what isn't? Man, that's a great question. And we Should we can, move on to the next we one? We can probably talk yeah. about it for a couple of hours <laughs> and, and still not exhaust this. But let's just start with our passage and then maybe kind of work our way out concentrically. So what God is promising and anticipating here is what Jeremiah describes more clearly in Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant, that what had been written in tablets of stone will one day be written on our hearts. And that was initially given to Israel. That's very clear in the Old Testament. And it was expected that it was only for Israel. And so you can imagine then the shock of the early church when God reveals to them, actually, it's not just for Israel. It's going to be for all people. That is Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 22 would tell us that even we Gentiles who once were far off have now been brought near. We who were outsiders have now been made insiders. We who were enemies are now reconciled because we have been made children of God and adopted into his family. And so what was originally revealed as for Israel later revelation made it clear that we actually get to be included in those promises by God's grace. Or as Romans would say, we get to be grafted in to those promises. There are other times where we can see contextually that God's given us giving a specific promise or declaration specifically for Israel. So for instance, I know the plans I have for you declares right. the Lord plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Now, we can often very easily say, oh, see, God's making that promise to me. But when we look in the context, he's talking specifically to Israel and he's saying, you're going to go into exile. You're going to face judgment. But ultimately, my plans for you are for your good. So we can see New Testament equivalents that we can claim. You know, Romans 8, 28, for instance, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But that we want to be really careful to look at who is he speaking to 
in what context, and then go based on that. So for instance, in Malachi chapter four, Lord says, test me in this, that if you give me your first fruits, will I not pour out my blessings on you? Well, there's many times where prosperity type preachers will say, look at what God has promised. He's inviting you to test him. Well, he's not talking to you there. He's talking to Israel in the context of the Mosaic covenant saying, if you fulfill the obligations of the covenant, I will give you the blessings of the the Mosaic covenant. Whereas we have far greater and deeper blessings that the New Testament describes in the New Covenant. Well, as you said, we can go a lot of different directions here, but there is one one place I I would like to go. Just maybe it's just me, Mm -hmm. but everybody can follow along with us. And that is this. In the Old Testament, certainly God dealt with individuals, but there seems to be a big focus in the Old Testament on people groups. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for example, yes, the, the Abrahamic covenant, God made a covenant with Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 11, 12, 13, in that mm-hmm. area, 53, 15. But it was for the people that would come and, and that was confirmed and affirmed on down through Moses and uh, David and so forth. And those covenants that God made with them. Then we'll get to the new Testament. There seems to be a, a, a more, maybe a little bit more personal mm. in some respects. Maybe I'm missing mm-hmm. that, but there's just seems there's, there's a lot more focus on the personal, if I can use a phrase that we often hear personal relationships sure. with Christ. Is that a, a Am I reading that right? Is that something that you might uh, parse through just briefly? And we can talk about it more at a later time, maybe. Sure. No, I think in general, we as Americans approach Scripture very individualistically. So whether we're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, we gravitate toward kind of the individual, either the individual promises or the individual relationship. But I do think that both in the Old and the New Testament, the corporate dimensions are often underestimated you know so god's promises for abraham and all his descendants we look at second samuel chapter 7 where it's promising a davidic king that will come and rule that's kind of alluded to for israel exactly for israel that's going to be reigning over all the people but even then in the new testament as much as it is certainly important that we each have an individual responsibility to respond to the lord that we are grafted in to a body that we are called to unity, that we have all these one another commands. And and so I think the covenant with the Lord entails responsibilities to the Lord, but also to one another. And so even in the passage we'll look at here in Hosea chapter four, when God is, is making his accusations against the Israelites, he accuses them of lacking faithfulness to God and love for one another. And so there's the horizontal as well as the vertical dimensions and the New Testament equivalent of that would be, what's the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so I think both are a key aspect of what it means to be in covenant with the Lord. Good. And there may be, maybe down the road, we can talk more about this idea of covenant theology mm. and uh, our Presbyterian brethren and uh, sure, how absolutely. we, uh, it'd be good to understand what other people believe. Okay, so I can't help but think we're, we're talking here about a marriage that is truly in dire straits, mm-hmm. uh, certainly between uh, uh, Jose and Gomer and mm-hmm. certainly then God and Israel. And by the way, we have talked about God and his bride Israel. Uh, there's another vid- visual mm-hmm. that we see in the New Testament 
Christ in the church uh, that maybe we can we can talk about sometime too. Mm. But can't help but as we're talking about marriage, there's no doubt somebody sitting in the pew at Grace Baptist Church, uh, they're hurting. Their marriage is failing. It might be due to at least one of the spouse's sins of unfaithfulness or whether that person, even if that person has repented, mm-hmm. uh, there's still a lot of hurt there. I know every situation is different, Tim, but are there some basic things that you might encourage or counsel couples with or individuals with in these types of situations since we're this close to it? Yeah. Let me maybe start with a a broader statement, and that is when we think about the way that unfaithfulness affects a marriage, our mind immediately goes to sexual unfaithfulness. And and that's right and appropriate. That's certainly what we've seen here in the story of Hosea and Gomer. I think what we need to begin by acknowledging is that every one of us are idolaters. We are spiritually unfaithful. And so even if someone has not been physically unfaithful, let's say in a marriage, we all have something that captures our mind, our heart, our attention, that we love, trust, and obey rather than God. And so there's a place of humility that begins by acknowledging my unfaithfulness to the Lord and therefore to my spouse by virtue of the thoughts that I think, the things that I say, the things that I do, the things that I don't do are going to lead to brokenness and pain and distrust. And and that's a part of God's plan and design for marriage is that we sharpen and shape each other. And that as I sin against my wife and as she sins against me and as we learn to forgive and extend grace and receive grace, we come to understand and know the gospel more and more. And so we talked a little bit already about preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, that for whatever spot you're in in your marriage, that's a good foundational principle to remind yourself of, I need the gospel. I need God's saving grace. I need his transforming grace. But now let's talk specifically about someone who has been affected by, let's say, the physical unfaithfulness of a spouse. Now that could include something like pornography. That could include a physical relationship. It could even include an emotional affair, if you wanted to call it that, where someone's heart begins to be drawn away by the allure of something new or different that promises satisfaction or security. I think as we understand the message of the gospel and the unconditional love that God has given us, we want to stand ready to forgive. But we don't want to cheapen forgiveness. Sometimes people imagine forgiveness as if it's just, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, I already forgave you. You didn't even need to ask me. Well, relation uh, forgiveness is a relational thing. And to forgive someone is to absorb the weight and the debt of what they have done. And some of those beautiful pictures that I've seen in Christian circles are times where a spouse has been sinned against, perhaps even in these types of severe ways. But rather than prosecuting their spouse or walking away from their spouse, they work to redeem that relationship. And it's hard work. It's messy. And I have some people very close to me that have walked these roads. But as the gospel is worked into those relationships and it progressively brings healing and hope, it's just such a beautiful picture of the unconditional love that we have been given by God. And so if you're in that place, I think my first word to you would be, don't think that it's hopeless. 
God is in the business of doing miracles, which includes softening hard hearts, opening blind eyes, and transforming people who had been running headlong toward dead-end roads to turn and return to him. I would say, secondly, seek good counsel, because in the moment, uh, often people tend toward one of two extremes. They either minimize it and say, oh, it's no big deal, and they don't really deal with the depth of the hurt that is there, or they react so strongly to it that they maybe could either overreact or too hastily react in ways that then they sin because they've been sinned against. And so just surrounding yourself with good counsel is going to help you be on guard against some of those seeds of bitterness, but also to process through the the forgiveness and the reconciliation in healthy ways. So those would be just a few things kind of off the top of my head, but it's a, uh, it's refreshing to me that the Bible doesn't shy away from these raw realities that we deal with. As you've already mentioned, it makes it a little interesting. We've got all the kids in the service through the month of July. Uh, Barb Hunt has mentioned that next year she hopes that our summer series is a little more kid-friendly. But all that being said, it, it does. It intersects right with where we really live. It reminds me of a discussion, I believe it was you and I had here on the microphones, and that was uh, maybe during our Habakkuk uh, uh, process of going through Habakkuk, that uh, three-chapter book that we often forget about or don't even see, but talking about what is faith. Mm. And in these times, not relying on our feelings, because the feelings are strong mm-hmm. at times like this. All we want is what we want. Mm. Both sides, the one who is sinning and the one who is being sinned against. And if we really look at what God says faith is in the scriptures. And of course, you know, we all think obviously of uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is a substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Mm. Um, we, if, if we are, stop relying on the feelings and th- rely on the truths that we know to be true, even though we may not be feeling it, that's where we start. Right. And, but we can't deny the feelings Absolutely. either. And I know that's not what you're Absolutely. saying, but I, I just think that's yeah. important. I think, at least in certain circles, the idea has been that good Christians just put on a brave face or just pretend that things are okay. And and I think what we want to do is tether our feelings to truth or to use a different analogy. We don't let our feelings be the engine of the train, but rather they have to be the caboose. And, and so they're there, they're real, they're, they're even raw at times, but we are leading our heart rather than letting our heart lead us. And putting those feelings down and not dealing with them is not good for the sinner. It's not good for the sin against. Absolutely. We've all seen that at different times. Tim, we, you and I were talking before we uh, started recording over the next couple of weeks. You're, go- you're going to be preaching this Sunday, mm-hmm. but you will not be with us on the podcast. So we uh, stay tuned for, uh, <laughs> for programming notes. But uh, following next week, we have Jeff Burr, uh, associate pastor and elder here at Grace. And we have Randy McKinnon, a, a devoted Old Testament scholar mm-hmm. uh, who's going to, who both are going to be preaching uh, two subsequent weeks after next week. And uh, can you give us some some peek into where we're going over the next three weeks, and then you'll be back with us in four weeks. Yep, absolutely. So this next week, we, the book of Hosea kind of shifts. We leave behind the story of Hosea and Gomer, and it really moves into a collection of Hosea's prophetic preaching, uh, where God is bringing his accusations against Israel and his announcements to Israel of the judgment that is coming. And so chapters four and five are kind of a almost a courtroom scene where the Lord says, let me present my case to you. You have been unfaithful by what you've done. 
You've been unfaithful by what you've left undone. And then he proceeds to accuse the priests, saying your leadership is complicit in this. He accuses the people, saying your choices have demonstrated a, a, an idolatry and an immorality that is, is disgusting to me. And then the Lord says, judgment is coming. I'm going to withdraw myself from you and I'm going to send Assyria to you. But all of that is intended for you to turn from your sin and to return to me. And then when we get to Hosea 6, which Jeff is going to be preaching on, just a really powerful um, passage, has one of the verses that you probably know from the book of Hosea, that is, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice, and really kind of exposes the religious hypocrisy of the people. Because see, they were still going through the motions as if, no, everything's just fine. No, we're still committed to God, but their hearts were really far from him. And I think that every one of us need to kind of examine our hearts and say, that could be me. I could be a hypocrite just like the Pharisees of Jesus's day who are doing all the right things, but maybe for all the wrong reasons. And then Randy's going to walk us through chapters 7 and 8 where God continues to bring accusation and indictment against the people, but again with the heart of inviting them to return in repentance. Another uh, reminder: It'd be a good time. Uh, we're done with the we're done with the storyline. Mm-hmm. We get into some of the narrative, the background narrative, and the uh, court uh, courtroom uh, mm-hmm. discussions. But it might be a good time to jump back in and reread all of Hosea uh, here as we'd be as we're preparing for the next few weeks. It's a great suggestion. Good. Well, Tim, hey, thank you very much. Uh, good to good to be with you again, and we look forward to being back with you here in four weeks. That sounds great. We've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and we encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our study of God's Word in Hosea chapters 4 and 5. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.